to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Duval and 11-13 to 13 Randolph Crescent Limited. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 18. And this week we will be heading to Maida Vale and getting into a dispute between two neighbours. Before we get into the juicy details, we will have to spend a little bit of time explaining the setup with the property and also why one of the parties to this case has such an unusual company name. The 11-13 Randolph Crescent referred to are two houses in Maidervale that were converted into nine separate flats. Of course, your boy had to do some stalking on Zoopla, and these are some luxury flats we are talking about here, likely to set you back around £1.5 million. Anyway, the freehold is retained by the appellant in this case, 11-13 Randolph Crescent Limited, and that company is also responsible for the management of the building. The dispute itself is between the respondent in this case, Dr Duval, who holds two of the leases, and a Mrs Winfield, who is also a leaseholder for one of the flats. Back in 2015, Mrs Winfield wanted to carry out some significant work to her flat, and this involved removing a substantial part of a load-bearing wall at basement level. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Dr Duval wasn't exactly keen on this idea, and at first the landlord refused the granting of a licence to Mrs Winfield. Nevertheless, she persisted, and after presentations by engineers and architects showing that the work would be safe, the landlord granted the licence subject to Mrs Winfield getting appropriate insurance. Duval was vexed and began proceedings against the landlord, arguing that the granting of the licence was a breach of the lease agreement. This means we need to spend a little bit more time examining the relevant clauses in more detail, and we can start off with clauses 2.6 and 2.7. 2.6 tells us that the lessee promises, quote, not without the previous written consent of the landlord to erect any structure, pipe, partition, wire or post upon the demised premises, nor make or suffer to be made any alteration or improvement in or addition to the demised premises. End quote. Meanwhile, 2.7 takes this further as it states that they are also, quote, not to commit or permit or suffer any waste, spoil or destruction in or upon the demised premises, nor cut, maim, or injure, or suffer to be cut, maimed, or injured, any roof, wall, or ceiling within or enclosing the demised premises, or any sewers, drains, pipes, radiators, ventilators, wires, and cables therein. End quote. The important difference between these two is that 2.6 is a qualified covenant, and so it is possible for the landlord to grant consent whereas 2.7 is an absolute covenant, and so the works specified are completely prohibited. Now, the work proposed by Winfield included the removal of part of a load-bearing wall, and so they fell within the more serious category of 2.7. That ought to mean the work was prohibited, but as we noted above, the landlord was prepared to grant a licence that would authorise a breach. The counter-argument that was raised by Duval related to a different part of the lease, and was in fact a covenant by the landlord. In 3.19, they promise, quote, to enforce any covenants entered into with the landlord by a tenant of any residential unit in the building of a similar nature to those contained in clause 2 of this lease, end quote. In other words, the landlord promised Duval 
that she could enforce the absolute prohibition found in Clause 2.7 at any time. The decision went back and forth in the lower courts, and so the dispute made its way up to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. For the justices, the point here was not to just simply look at the clauses on their own, but also to consider them in context as well. As a starting point, these are not short-term leases that we are talking about here. Each lasts 125 years and are very valuable in and of themselves. However, this context clue also tells us that during this extended period of time, it is to be expected that at certain points, it will become necessary to carry out work on the flats, and that such work will be permitted by the landlord. The full extent of such work or modifications might vary, but it should also be expected that it will not impact on the overall structure of the building, or importantly, impinge on the actual lessees and their own flats. Finally, given the legal position of 11 to 13 Randolph Crescent Limited as holders of the reversionary interest and the company in charge of management of the properties, it is to be expected that they will be playing an active role in the fulfilment of any obligations under the lease. So with that context established, Lord Kitchen's sole judgment moved on to the clauses themselves. We spoke earlier about how clause 2.6 is more to do with the routine improvements that a lessee might want to make to their own flat. In that situation, the landlord would have to consent, but it is not as if the consent can be unreasonably refused. On the other hand, Clause 2.7 deals with much more serious changes that are described as waste, spoil or destruction, and would fundamentally alter the building. All of this brings us back to the question at the heart of this case, whether the landlord is actually able to license the type of work that would normally qualify as a breach of Clause 2.7. Clause 3.19 does tell us that the landlord promises to enforce covenants, but it does not explicitly say that they cannot grant a license for such work to be carried out. That is not good news for Duval, but the question then becomes whether it is implicit in the lease that permission cannot be granted for work that would breach Clause 2.7. When thinking about this, it is important to bear in mind that there are other restrictions on a landlord's ability to make changes to the flat of a lessee. For example, a lessee is entitled to quiet enjoyment of their flat, protection against nuisance, and indeed for the structure of the building to be maintained. Beyond that, it is also a well-established legal principle that if a party undertakes a certain obligation, such as the one in Clause 3.19, then that necessarily includes a further obligation not to do something that would make it impossible to carry out that original obligation. It is this principle that applies in this situation, the promise of the landlord to enforce other covenants contains within it an implied duty not to do something that would make it impossible to enforce such covenants. To put it another way, Clause 2.7 is an absolute covenant, and 3.19 allows it to be enforced as an absolute covenant by any of the leaseholders. If the landlord were able to simply grant a license to get around Clause 2.7, then that would have the effect of completely undermining 3.19. Furthermore, it cannot be allowed to matter that the licence was granted to Mrs Winfield first, because that would undermine the value of the actual lease that was agreed between the parties. Something of that importance cannot simply be subject to first come first serve. The Supreme Court concluded that if Mrs Winfield wanted to proceed with her proposal, 
then it is only right and proper that she obtain the consent of Dr. Duval. So a bit of behind the scenes here, but when I am trying to write my own critique of a case, I will sometimes look at what else has been written about it in the legal press. And for something like this, there is a fair amount because it is a landlord and tenant case, and so it attracts a broader interest across that industry. Unfortunately, the quality in this instance is pretty dire, and I think it can serve as a warning about getting information from case notes that are thrown together online, even if they are on the professional-looking website of a barrister's chambers. My favourite seemed to not understand why the structural work was classified as structural work, or even how Clause 2.6 was different to Clause 2.7. Another good one is from the losing Wilberforce Chambers, who obviously decided to paint this case as the end of the world, and landlord-tenant law will never be the same again. After all, if this applies to all absolute clauses, then what if there is an absolute clause banning someone from having a pet? The comparison between work that affects the structure of a building and owning a dog is clearly absurd, and yet not as bad as the false claim that this decision affects the law as it relates to qualified clauses as well. The narrative seems to be based on the idea that the power of tenants has increased exponentially, and landlords are now in a much weaker position. In truth, it is still the landlord who holds the reversionary interest here, and so they hold all the cards. They often write the agreements as well, so it's hard to frame it as a change in this dynamic when they are simply held to their own terms. If we take a step back and think about what has actually happened here, there is a clause that says the lessee cannot carry out structural work, and the Supreme Court has held that the lessee cannot carry out structural work. That is hardly revolutionary or cause for panic amongst landlords. The implied term invoked by the Supreme Court is not adding anything new, but is instead merely enforcing the existing agreement. Even if these clauses are pretty standard amongst lease agreements, the type of work we are talking about is of such a serious nature as to only apply to a small range of cases, and even then depends on an objection from another leaseholder before it becomes an issue for landlords. Wilberforce Chambers tried to play up retrospective claims that might arise because of this decision, but again these are likely to be so few and far between as to be of almost zero consequence. In reality, the only real lesson from this case is that it is up to the parties to think carefully about the agreements that they enter into, and in particular the consequences that they might have down the road. Furthermore, it is important to understand that different clauses of an agreement interact with one another in different ways, and so a lease or any other type of contract has to be thought about holistically. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you want to find out more or want access to more resources, then do go to my website, which is uklawweekly.com. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!